0: Welcome to Talking Apes. What does it mean to conserve, especially the conservation of nature and the environment? And is our concept of conservation clouded by our mixed interpretations of the very things we call nature and environment? What seems like simple, straightforward concepts, our history of species and landscape conservation suggests they've been anything but simple and straightforward. On this episode of Talking Apes, we're going to be exploring the way we think, interpret, and talk about conservation. No longer just protecting species from bullets, conservationists have expanded their mission to save, as my next guest wrote, the shrubbery and the wetlands from bulldozers. As the conservation pioneer Aldo Leopold put it, the only way to stop extinction is to first save the organism called the land. Conservation has been filled with sometimes flawed but interesting individuals and groups, scientists, zoologists, do-gooders, activists, but despite their mistakes, without their efforts, our current condition could or would be so much, much worse. This time on Talking Apes, we're joined by science journalist, Michelle Nyhaus. Her writings on the environment, climate and conservation regularly appear in the Atlantic, High Country News and Smithsonian magazines, Michelle joins us for a thoughtful, personal look at conservation's meaning and how it's important in our lives and how that's brought to life in her new book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in the Age of Extinction. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening to and with apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Hi, Michelle, and welcome to Talking Apes. It's so wonderful to have you on.
1: Hi, Jerry. Thanks so much for having
0: me. You know, I've read so much of your work over the years, and then you come out with this book just about the same time that we were hoping to get you on. And so it was perfect timing, perfect subject to talk about conservation and our, just our connection to conservation. And I was trying to think about how we start this podcast, because your book is filled with so many amazing stories about the people who have been involved in conservation, especially from a Western perspective. What I'd like to do is as a storyteller in a different medium, filmmaking, I, I find that it's, it's sometimes easier for me to start at the end <laughs> and figure out what the ending is going to be so, and then backtrack and see if I can make that make sense and understand where I'm going to go. And if I'm going to get there, I don't always get there. Um, and that's what I'd like to do with your help. I'd like to start actually at the end of your book. In the last couple of chapters, and and then we can sort of back up. It, so starting with this, in, in the final chapter, um, you quote thinker and writer Aldous Huxley. He said, "Living simultaneously in a world of experience and a world of notions." And then you go on and say, "Our business as humans is human beings is to make the best of both of these worlds." What did you mean by including his quote?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for starting at the end because the end is my favorite part of the book, and people rarely ask about it. So, um, I I chose that quote from Aldous Huxley. Well, first of all, I should say that Aldous Huxley's older brother Julian Huxley is a character in my book. He had a lot to do with the internationalization of the mainstream conservation movement in the middle of the twentieth century, and he and his his younger brother Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World and and you know, famous for his dystopian uh, imaginings about our collective future, they kept up a lifelong con- uh, conversation about about the world and about humans' place in it. That was just fascinating to get to dip into. And one of their favorite metaphors, both of them had a, had an a affection for the metaphor of the amphibian. And humans as amphibians. And so the quote that you, that you brought up is, is part of Julian Huck. I mean, I'm sorry, let me start that again. The quote that you brought up is, is uh, part of Aldous Huxley's observation that we, we are as amphibians in that we, we are part of the rest of life. We are part of the quote unquote natural world. Uh, we are we are vulnerable to the damage that we do to it. But we also have certain capacities that give us influence, uh, an unusual, perhaps unique influence over its future. And that the job of conservation is such a complex one because it requires us to hold both of those ideas in our head at the same time. And the conservation movement has has <laughs> been done well at that and done not so well at that over the course of its hundred plus year history. Um, My hope is that we're starting to get slightly better at that, but there's a lot of evidence that we are still uh, stuck in the contradictions of, of that metaphor. And, and I would, I would love to see a movement that instead of toggling back and forth between those two possibilities embraces them both.
0: I I find it really interesting that it, yeah the the final if it's not too if I don't mess up the ending by saying the ch- chapter title H- Homo amphibious, it I, I find it fascinating that they had this amphibian connection because may are we like amphibians in that they're going extinct on this planet almost faster than any other group um what is it it's like three hundred amphibians are on the brink of extinction or have gone extinct or something in and just recently um so (laughs) maybe they're having semi semi permeable membranes uh skins is something we should take note of as human beings about our environment huh
1: i think so too and it's very easy to i think it's very easy to be caught up in our capabilities and i'm not (laughs) i'm not Anti-technology in any kind of dogmatic way. I, I think that there's plenty of uh, plenty of applications for advanced technologies of many kinds in conservation. Um, but I think it's very easy for conservation, as well as you know, like like many other fields, to get caught up in in the special genius of humans and to forget that we are as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable, than the species that we're purportedly trying to protect.
0: There's so many places I want to go with this. This is going to be about a six-hour podcast because uh, I, ho- I hope you have plenty of time there.
1: Um, <laughs> now you know how I felt when I was writing the book.
0: <laughs> I, I, I heard you mention that you were trying to wrap up the whole concept of conservation and its history into a single volume. I mean, that must have been... Let, let's just go there for a moment. That must have been an incredibly daunting initial task why Why try to take that on?
1: Well, I joke that had I known how daunting it would be, I wouldn't have taken it on. But I, I did have a pretty good idea that it would be difficult. But I really felt that there was a need for it because even within the conservation movement, there's not a very strong understanding of where the conservation movement has been. Uh, I think perhaps because people who are drawn to conservation aren't all that interested in human history or, or history on a human scale. They're interested in, you know, the next emergency they're interested in evolutionary time but they they're occupied understandably with the job in front of them and they don't often take a lot of time to look back and you know there are some histories there's some histories of certain periods in the conservation movement certainly there's lots of biographies of famous conservationists there's always a section in a you know your your standard environmental science or conservation biology textbook that that you know spends a few pages talking about the history of the movement but there was nothing that really brought the ideas and and the mistakes and the successes of the movement together in one place in a way that was accessible. And I I thought that was possible. And I really wanted to give it a try because I felt like there was a need for conservationists and, and other people and people interested in conservation to look back and see what conservation had accomplished so far, which I think is significant, but also where some of its blind spots have originated and how those can be tackled going forward.
0: I'll steal a title from another book in reference to you taking this on undaunted courage <laughs> um, <laughs> I think uh, um, in, in doing it I, you mentioned well something. I
1: should say I didn't I never had the ambition or the delusion that I could tell the whole history of conservation. What I hoped to do was represent it as a tradition, which mm-hmm. I think the histories that we do have of the conservation movement, as I said, are mostly biographies of individual famous conservationists that then include some context. But so what conservationists do know about their history is mostly, oh, these isolated individual heroes. And those are, they were all amazing people in their own way. And many of them do appear in my book, but they were part of a tradition. And I wanted to represent that tradition. I knew I couldn't tell the whole story, but I hope to show the turning points in that tradition through these stories that I told and show the connections among them.
0: Another place to start, I guess, is to back that up with you and talk about this history because it isn't a very long history, really. Um, it, it's only, you know, a bit. I don't know at this point about 150 years or something. One of the things that I was so curious about uh, several years ago when I, I sort of detoured on this path, looking at at grade eight and their conservation, was that's so much of what was going on in in the primate world, which extends for the most part across the tropics of Africa and Asia and the Amazonian part of America, uh, South America. The thing about it is we keep applying this westernized concept of conservation to those areas. So I was trying to get to why doesn't it work? Why does it fail? It seems like far more than it succeeds. So I, I kind of Took myself on a, my own history journey to try to figure this out, and I was really fascinated by the fact that basically started in the mid 1800s and by a, a small collection of extremely wealthy white men, and it, it took over a hundred years to actually create a national park in in this, in the United States that was focused on biodiversity. I mean, it was mostly just these grandiose places, and so maybe you could talk about that history a little bit, where we've come and some of the punctuation marks along the way in its its evolution or lack of evolution?
1: Sure. Um, I should say that my book is a history of what I call the modern conservation movement in order to make clear that humans have been practicing forms of conservation on a local level for most likely since the beginning of human history. I mean, communities have, have for, for generations limited themselves to... You know, certain hunting quotas or, or you know, ban certain practices that they knew would uh, would threaten the long-term survival of the species they lived alongside and by extension their own survival. But the modern conservation movement, by which I mean a movement of people who were interested in protecting species that they didn't necessarily depend on directly for survival and sometimes might not even see in the course of their own life. Uh, that did get its start in the mid 1800s, really alongside the the understanding in North America and Europe that not only could species go extinct, which was itself a relatively recent understanding uh, by Victorian scientists, but that humans themselves could drive species extinct, and and this was counter to the long standing notion that species were categories created by God and that they never changed and certainly never went extinct um because of human activities. So so that understanding jump started the modern conservation movement and um then the secondary understanding that that people could not only drive species extinct on isolated islands but they could drive these physically large, very abundant species like the American bison extinct by you know killing them uh in enormous numbers for commercial purposes. Um made people realize, oh, we have a huge part in this and we shouldn't accept it as inevitable. We should do something to stop it. The people, most of the people who made that, what I think of as a leap of imagination, um, were wealthy white sport hunters who loved hunting bison or, you know, other big game and realized that if uncontrolled exploitation was allowed to continue, they would no longer be able to do that. So their their reasons were very tied up with uh, their own love of the sport, uh, their own ideas about nationalism and masculinity, but I also think they had a genuine appreciation for the beauty of these species. Um, but, but their ideas about what needed to be done, uh, that we needed to stop hunting we needed to control subsistence hunting. We needed to establish parks and reserves. Those ideas are still very deeply accepted, I think, within the mainstream conservation movement even today. Only in recent decades has the conservation movement, writ large, started to move toward a more inclusive, more um, diverse toolbox, tool, excuse me, a, a more diverse set of strategies that have, Possibility of accomplishing more than parks and reserves can in terms of protecting species and helping the people who live alongside these species uh, meet their basic needs. Do you do you think
0: that because the the West has such a huge you know between Europe, the United States, Australia, uh, Canada, we there they have such a profound influence on conservation around this planet in part because they put so much of the money into, into the initiatives. Do you, do you think it's, there's to some degree, there's a certain flawedness in, in the thinking and the approaches partly because culturally all of our parks and our set asides, all of our, I mean, we go to save a species, it's we, It's a very linear process. We're going to go protect the bald eagle. We're going to go protect whatever that species is. And so naturally, when we go to export that, um, and especially coming from these large, almost corporate conservation groups, um, it's very difficult to switch your thinking. It's very difficult to switch a, a more inclusive approach, which is... I mean, you you referenced a minute ago the fact that many of these people, uh, without using a word conservation, they had conservation policies. You don't overhunt that thing. I I remember a few years ago, I was listening to a young woman, First Nation woman from Canada on a panel, and all the rest of the panelists were generally from Western countries talking about the environment. And she said, I'd just like to interject, we don't have a word for that in my language, we don't have a word for this external thing that you all are talking about that we need to get back in touch with and, and i thought it was an incredibly poignant moment and and i won so I've, I've i've wondered if that is one of the the challenges with thinking about conservation is that culturally we think about conservation as that thing over there that park we go to that you know sanctuary that reserve if we see species, we go to zoos to do that. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, it's actually, I have a an essay out today in the magazine Yale E360 about um, my call to find other words for nature, <laughs> uh, because I think a lot of, uh, a lot of writers have pointed out in recent years that that the quote unquote natural world no longer exists because we have, the human footprint is now so wide and deep, and I, I think that's probably all too true. But I also think that the word "nature" or "environment"—these these very general words that we have that are sort of a, a, a undefined basket of things that aren't very human—are <laughs> um, are not that are in, are confusing and and in many ways counterproductive for the conservation movement because obviously we are. Part of the living world is, as you point out, we we are great apes as well, and um, words like nature and environment, convenient as they sometimes are, as a kind of mutually understood shorthand or or half understood shorthand, uh, really do allow us to continue in this belief that we are we are protecting, quote unquote, nature from ourselves, and that can work in a in a very limited local way when there's, you know, when there's a, a narrow direct threat and species need sanctuary and certainly parks and reserves have, have done good work on behalf of conservation. But I think the real challenge of conservation and the one that faces the conservation movement now is how do we protect nature, quote unquote nature, from people and for people? <laughs> and how do we support cultures that have long-standing, existing ways of living alongside other species. How do, how do we support those frameworks and strengthen those frameworks? How do we establish new frameworks that allow, as I said, people to live alongside other species in some kind of sustainable way. And I mean, to me that's, that's a daunting, but also very exciting challenge for conservation because I feel like, the continued dependence on parks and reserves while we will still continue to need them to some extent given the damage we're doing to other habitats that that's a strategic dead end uh, we need other strategies and and we and they're out there they're they're being demonstrated by many people and many cultures around the world and i hope that the conservation movement is beginning to embrace them there is a there's a long running a debate within conservation biology on this point that that I really think is has been frustrating to me for a long time, where people uh, have argued about whether nature has intrinsic value and should be protected for its intrinsic value, or whether nature should be protected for instrumental human benefit. And to me, I think, isn't it both? <laughs> I know that I I feel that in myself. I feel that the bald eagles in the Columbia Gorge where I live have intrinsic value, as do the many other species that they depend on and we depend on. But I also want my 12-year-old to grow up in a world where ecosystems are providing clean water to humans and other species. I mean, I, I don't think that those are really extricable, um, and I'd rather I'd rather see the conservation movement. Instead of arguing about that, which I think is basically an unanswerable question and just a way of polarizing people uh, within the movement, I'd rather see people start talking about how do we support both of those things.
0: That makes me think about these last two chapters, um, in, in which, in fact, the title of the second-to-last chapter is, which I love, is "The Few Who Save the Many." Um, and it made me think about it, it. It made me think about who the few were and who the many were, um, and and you illustrate that in this in the story in there. Um, both by a, a, a and I'll let you explain maybe a bit more, but both by the by the young scientists who's studying the fishes and the fishes, and and at once what was fascinating about it as a conclu- as one of your conclusions i guess is that at once he was one of the many and he was the few and the fishes are the many and they are the few and and i it really made you me got stop. it
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool Good.
0: i got it thank you um, yeah that it really was my made intent. me stop and, and think and and mm-hmm. i i got up this morning And reread that again because I just thought that's that's a really – I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do not only with this podcast, as I mentioned to you before we started today, was it's about education and awareness. It's about making people understand there are great apes on this planet, where they live, why they live there, and how that connection is so critical to not only the the two and a half billion people who live in near proximity to them physically, but to the other, you know, five billion of us on the planet and what that means. And you had a you had another line, and I'll look at it, but it said something about uh, you know, as children, uh, I'll I'll misquote you badly. Sorry, um, but as, as children, it's it's this it's the impression of numbers, you know, it's, it's the millions of bison, the million wildebeest that first grab our attention. And, and that's why that, that title of the chapter is, was so poignant to me because it really made me start thinking about as an organization, Globio, how, how do we create awareness? How do we create education? How do we connect people to these, these ideas? And it, it, Maybe you could just walk us through a bit of that story because I thought it was, it was a really wonderful way to bring that all together.
1: Yeah, I, um, one, of the, one of the near-term inspirations for writing this book was really a, a frustration with journalists and perhaps conservation communicators in that we are so dependent on extinction and endangerment as a news hook and we are always, you know, when we try to make conservation dramatic and interesting as as it is, and that we, you know, we need to find ways of doing that. Otherwise, people won't read our stories. Uh, but we always, or not always, but we often default to the drama of extinction. And I think the conservation movement does too when it's trying to communicate the urgency of what it does to people. And that's understandable, but it obscures what conservation is really going for, which is to preserve abundance. You know, conservation, I hope, is not just trying to preserve a couple of rhinos in a zoo, a couple of apes in a zoo, uh, It is trying, the movement writ large is trying to preserve healthy populations of species that live within ecosystems. Um, and of course, it's much easier to protect a species when it's healthy, <clears throat> excuse me, as than to bring it back from an you know a critically endangered state, and I so I think that message gets forgotten. And the the scientist I that I profiled in the last chapter, Emmanuel Frimpong, who grew up in Ghana and is now a, a fisheries biologist at Virginia Tech, studies a. a, a fish species called the bluehead chub, which is it's not endangered in any way. <laughs> and it lives in in very, you know, lovely, but kind of hum, humdrum streams in Virginia. Uh, and so no one was really studying it. People, you know, knew of it and, you know, incidentally had looked a little closer at, at it. But, but no one was studying it in a formal way. And when he and his students started looking at it, sort of because... All the really interesting species were taken, and he was a young researcher. <laughs> he found out, wow, this this supposedly boring, uh, easily accessible species, it's actually fascinating because it builds these wild nests out of rocks in the in the bottoms of these of these quiet streams. And and these rocky nests are supporting you know, seven to ten other fish species, you know, some of which are potentially threatened by. Uh, pollution or or other incursions by humans. And and so he that really changed. He had been trained in the conventional way that cons- conservation biologists are trained, you know, growing up uh, really loving wildlife as a kid and then becoming concerned about endangered wildlife. And then he says when I, you know, when he got to know the endangered bluehead chub, the, that the chub taught him about the value or maybe reintroduced him to the value of Common species and of, of protecting species while they're still abundant, because many of these species, like the bluehead chub, can be responsible for protecting. You know, can support a whole ecosystem of of relationships that would otherwise not be happening were they not around. Um, yeah, I I loved Emmanuel Frimpong's story, both for the details of what the fish were doing underwater, which was really, I mean getting a chance to see up close what was happening in these in these apparently quiet little streams, it's as active down there as a coral reef. So it was really personally quite eye-opening for me. And, and then just his work as a metaphor for where I think the conservation movement needs to be going, that was quite powerful, that um, both in practice and then in communication with the public, that certainly the emergencies need to be communicated but so do so does the larger mission of we want to be living alongside healthy populations of other species
0: well that's i mean i loved your description of it in in that that in the beginning where you, you trained your binoculars on on this thing that was just right in front of you and <laughs> uh, and and i thought how beautiful is that because that's that that seems to be the problem. We aren't training the binoculars on the thing closest to us and really taking a, a very careful and thoughtful eye at what, what's happening there and the magic of what's happening there. It's, it's always, the I guess the metaphor of the binoculars is that we're always looking at that thing far away. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the further away and we can kind of pull it in, but in doing so, we also are isolating it from everything around it. And there you were—you were standing right on the edge of the stream, <laughs> just a few feet into the water, um, to see this amazing thing that was happening in front of you. Yeah, it, it again—it really made me stop and and re- and and think a lot about what it is as a filmmaker, how I'm telling a story, um, and and what it is because we, it's easy to fall victim to the very thing that you were talking about, it, just as much as as a writer. He, the sensational is what's going to grab people's attention, and especially with today, I think with social media and other things, it's you know it's a, a sensation a second kind of approach. And I sometimes wonder if one of the things that we're missing from science and conservation is language. We, I think the the language of conservation is a little like learning. Um, a foreign language like learning French. I mean, you don't just take a, a class one day and all of a sudden you can speak fluently for the rest of your life. And and we've sort of treated conservation and science, especially in the media, but also I think in our, our education system, we've treated it a bit like that. We do this punctuation mark conservation class. We bring in a specialist from uh, a local NGO or... Um, and this happens a lot internationally, but... And it becomes an event that day, for, for especially for kids. And they get all excited, and we show them some really cool things. But the next thing you know, you're gone. And they go back to just working on rote math and whatever. And we expect for them to somehow carry that, that language of science and conservation into the rest of their life, and especially when it comes to making political decisions and voting decisions. Voting decisions in supermarkets about what we buy and what we eat. Um, and I wonder how do we, I've struggled with this, how do, how do we change that language? <clears throat> Excuse me, how do we create more fluency?
1: Yeah, I, I really agree with you. I think that conservation, because of the way it's taught and because perhaps of the ways we, the words we use to talk about it, re- remains a special interest. It's treated as a special interest politically and and in education and um and culturally and I think that's we need we desperately need to get beyond that. It needs to be a common practice. Um I mean there's so many ways to to tackle that problem. I, I guess one one evolution I've seen in journalism, I've covered climate change for a long time and and I think there has been an, a realization, unfortunately, because the effects of climate change have become much more visible and much more, much deeper. There has been a realization among journalists that, oh, OK, every story is a climate story to some extent. Um, we This can't be, yes, you know, we, maybe we have a, a team of climate change reporters and that's great, but we also need, you know, to have, to have everybody at every desk have a working understanding of climate change and how uh, how it might be affecting what they are covering. I don't necessarily see the same understanding with conservation as a whole. Um, it's possible that the pandemic could have some effect on that um, because it you know the pandemic has made it so dramatically clear that our fate is tied to that of other species. But i I do think that in journalism and education in in the communication that that conservation groups do, we can start with language and we can also just expand the our own concept of conservation. And that is, I'm not, many people take that to mean, oh, we should water down our concepts of what conservation means. And and I don't mean that at all. I mean that we should broaden them and by doing so strengthen them. um, And and take it out Uh, And I'm sorry, let me back up there and get beyond, I think, the popular, pretty simplistic understanding that conservation is just about, as I said earlier, protecting, quote unquote, nature from people by drawing lines around it or putting fences or walls around it. Uh, That's part of conservation, but it's far from, you know, the entire job of conservation. And and we need to make that clear. (coughs)
0: Excuse me. As a writer, you, have you found that the pandemic has allowed you to talk about the, the science in a different way? I, do you do find uh, publishers are more receptive to, because you do a lot of writing, non-book writing. You do a lot of periodical writing and, and things. and. Um, have you found that that those editors and those publishers are are more receptive to not talking down? I'm, I'm trying to think about how I want how, how to say this, but I, I think, as you mentioned, I think there has been a dumbing down of some of of this. And there's like we have to talk down. We have to take big concepts like climate change, climate crisis. We have to take um, you know the the more difficult. Um, elements of science and we have to dumb them down so that the public will understand. And I just wonder if something like a a pandemic, because people seem to be more keenly uh, focused on the science of it, Like, like, where does this thing go? How does it work? I mean, for the first time in many people's lives, they're actually thinking about a virus, like how a virus works. And there's so many people out there trying to explain how a virus works so that from, you know, just from a health security standpoint. um, And I'm just wondering, are publishers and editors more eager to have the science language lifted up than they were two years ago, a couple of years ago? Are people thinking the public will get this? Let's talk to them using language and concepts and, and illustrations that does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah. It's hard for me to speak generally about editors because I work with editors who have always been pretty open to complexity. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I think the editors I, I most like working with are editors who, who know that their audiences are curious people who happen to be specialists in other things, (laughs) um, you know, who, who are, who are very intelligent people, but are, are general, are wearing the hat of the general reader when they, when they read, say a, a story about conservation or a story about immunology. Um, and so the technical terms might need to be translated. Uh, the concepts might need to be presented in a way that's slightly less precise than a, than a specialist might present them, but are really no less accurate. And in, you know, in some ways, no less, you know, complex. They, we can't go into every detail, but we can say, you know, yes, this, (laughs) this is more complicated, but here's, here's what you need to know. We can acknowledge the complexity without um, overwhelming people with the details so that there, there are, and have always been ways of doing that. I do think that the pandemic, um, One of the, you know, very small silver linings of the pandemic is that it has demonstrated that hopefully to a larger, uh, the larger media universe that, that, yeah, readers are, are intelligent. They just are not specialists uh, when, you know, most of them are not specialists when they're reading what you were writing and uh, it, they, they can go a long way especially when they have a very obvious vested interest in understanding what's going on. And I think the pandemic has not only, uh, you know, it's not only given us a vested interest in, in, you know, how the immune system works, but it's given us a vested interest in how conservation works and how biodiversity works. And uh, so I do see it as an opportunity for the media.
0: Cause I just, I, I find just even walking through the, through my own neighborhood, and stopping and chatting with people. It, if we it, you almost invariably start talking about the pandemic, you start talking about getting a vaccination. And I go out of my way to, to use the word, you know, zoonosis and, and it almost always catches them like, what is that? You know, and then you explain it and they get, they're so fascinated because they're in the middle of it playing itself out. And it just seems like this is such a golden opportunity. Um, to really elevate science.
1: Yeah, it's experiential it's experiential learning of the very worst kind, but also the very the most powerful kind. And uh I, yeah, I do hope that policymakers as well as journalists and as well as conservation organizations will will take advantage of it. I've seen uh, Wildlife Conservation Society has has done a lot of media around one health, how do we prevent the next pandemic? And I think that's very smart.
0: The title of, of your book, "Beloved Beasts," and but the subtitle, "Fighting for Life in the Age of Extinction," about um, not quite a decade ago, Elizabeth uh, Colbert wrote about the sixth extinction, and there was an interesting, and she and the subtitle to that was "Unnatural History," and I want to talk about is it really unnatural? I mean, we, you know. It's the sixth extinction because we we think we know of five before that. Um, but are we really in an age of extinction? And if we are the, the average person would say, why do I care? Why do I why should I really really care? Um, you know, there's always been that sort of joke about it's more important to get my laundry tomorrow than it is to worry about, you know, extinction years away. Um, I once had a genetics professor who, who I played racquetball every morning with. And he, he said, you're sort of a tree hugger type, aren't you? And I said, well, I, I guess you could kind of say that. And he says, I think you guys need to figure out another uh, another explanation for why you want to save the planet, not future generations. Because he said, you have no idea if you're going to have children. and they And without having them, they won't have children. And so this future generation you keep talking about, you need to figure out why you need to do what you're doing now. And I thought it was another one of those things that kind of twisted my perspective on things around a bit. I mean, at that point, I I definitely thought I would have kids. Now it turns out 40 years later, I don't have any kids. Um, but so, so where is, where is that? How should we care? I mean, how should we be able to explain that to people and value it? Um, you know, in, in terms of extinction, what does it, what does it really matter? I mean, there's frogs going extinct in the middle of the Amazon right now. Does it, does it affect my daily commute? Does it affect me getting a vaccine for this? How do you talk to people about that?
1: Yeah. Well, the subtitle was really an effort to take advantage of, uh, the fact the longstanding, uh, weakness, as I talked about, the weakness of the media, or, or excuse me, let me back up. The, the subtitle was a, an effort to take advantage of, as I talked about earlier, the media's longstanding tendency to use extinction as a, as a news hook. Um, so my, my hope with the title was to say, you may have heard <laughs> that we're, we're in an age of extinction, and but then to go from there, uh, I mean, I love and admire Elizabeth Colbert's book. And I mean, it was, I think it really changed the conversation in some important ways. And my hope, if I can flatter myself, was to say, okay, all that is true. Now what? Now, where do we go? If, yes, it's it's very possible that uh, we are we are perhaps not Literally in an age of extinction right now, but we are certainly in an age of declining abundance, and there are many species that are not endangered now but are showing signs of you know declining in number. And in the coming decades, you know, the predictions are that as many as a million species may be at, at risk of extinction. So extinction is certainly a pressing concern, but if we Truly, if we stop there, if we accept the fact that we're in an age of extinction, it sounds like we should just lie on the couch right and um okay, give up you know we 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 screwed up uh, there's nowhere to go from here and and my hope was to say we can still fight for life yes, all these threats are real um but just because we can't save everything doesn't mean we can't save a lot and it doesn't mean we haven't we haven't done some things right in the past and that we and and it doesn't mean that we haven't learned anything. We've actually learned a lot. We've had a lot of successes. We've taken some wrong turns in the conservation movement for sure. Those are still haunting us today, but we know a lot. We're in many ways, we're headed in some right directions and and we have a lot of opportunities. So um, as I said, my hope was to to use that tendency in the media and people's familiarity with extinction uh, for for good purposes.
0: Well, that's why I thought it was interesting. There was another quote that you had in the book, and this was from Aldo Leopold. And the only way to stop extinction is to first save the organism he called the land. And it kind of goes back to where we started with some of the conversation today, and that is this view of the common, this view of this thing right in front of us. It seems like an incredible underappreciation of just the landscape in general, not a specific thing within it, but just how this... This larger organism fits together and works. What are your thoughts on how we how we bridge that gap to where people think about this bigger organism? Those words nature and environment that we don't want to use but um,
1: well, I think the conservation movement has gone through its own evolution in that respect uh when people were when those sport hunters were standing up for the American bison. They were standing up for an individual species. They weren't thinking about habitat uh, much at all. It wasn't. It was not hardly a concept. The science of ecology was still quite young. Uh, by the time Aldo Leopold came around in the 30s and 40s, um, his great accomplishment, I think, was to to marry the principles of ecology with with conservation thinking, and to say we need to do more than just protect. Species that are being over enthusiastically hunted, we need to protect the land as he called it, the habitat that they and we would now say land and oceans and waters that they depend on and I think although Leopold was very prescient in that he always included humans in that picture um he was it was kind of a it was an, a vision that that both looked back and I think looked forward in important ways because he he never really had the idea that that humans couldn't have a constructive role in conservation. He always saw humans as being um, members of what he called the land community. And so I think the conservation movement has a, conservationists themselves have a pretty strong sense of, of it being important to protect the ecosystem, to protect many species in relationship with each other to protect relationships rather than single species or certainly single animals. Uh, but, but I don't think that's reflected in the way that they communicate with the public. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily reflected in the way journalists, uh, communicate with the public. I, I often think that, I I mean, I love and admire bald eagles, but I never want to see an article of mine illustrated with a bald eagle ever (laughs) again. (laughs) because it just perpetuates this idea that we are trying to protect these single species these single especially single very rare species and yes it's harder to portray relationships it's harder to portray non-charismatic species especially visually um it's sometimes harder to to find the drama in those stories it's not lying right there on the surface but i think conservationists and uh, journalists do have a responsibility to try and find those stories and communicate them because that that is the the central goal of conservation is is protecting relationships, not protecting these single species in isolation.
0: Half of the you know the big environmental conservation NGOs, you pop open their their web page, and the very first thing you'll see is the species they're saving at the moment, whether it's a panda, a tiger, a elephant, whatever it is. It's it's this constant reinforcement of the single species approach.
1: Totally. To and I, I, yeah, and I think uh, I understand the you know, the attachment to that strategy, it has worked in some ways, but we need to have the courage to step slightly away from it <laughs> and try to tell a more complex story. As, as we were talking about earlier, I think the public is perhaps more ready for it than, than our conservation organizations and journalists assume uh it just has to be we just have to be creative in how we present the story
0: do you think we're missing i mean one of the things that that you do so beautifully in the book is is that sort of magic um of of the story around these events and and i and now i i'm going back to you standing on the edge of that stream and looking at these fish it's the magic you know, I mean, that's what brings brings alive that six or eight year old in us. And are we not doing when we we jump immediately to just flashing the species up on the screen for everybody? Are we are we missing that moment where we really engage them in the magic, um, which is the thing that it seems like? I, I, I go back to that that line that you have in there about as as children you know we we fall in love with with the masses you know that that's a scene of of hundreds and hundreds of bison walking you know moving across a plane is is an awing thing or wildebeest or a group of dolphins on the front of a boat and porpoising you know along and and you get to experience that and um i mean even something as simple as i'm thinking of monarch butterflies and we see these pictures of them massing on their way to mexico and stuff it it is that that but it's the magic in that it's it it seems like and that, i'm just wondering if we're not we're not being clever enough storytellers in general I, and i'm not talking about you specifically or any specific individual making a uh, writing a book and an article, making a film, whatever, but as as a conservation community, as conservation organizations, are are we, we forgetting to, to look at the magic of what we do and what we're trying to save?
1: In some ways, it's funny. You should ask about that because I have been thinking about that recently. I wrote a, an article for the New York times parenting section for earth day about uh, how to raise a conservationist in so many words, uh, drawing on what I had learned about the early lives of professional conservationists through writing this book and thinking about, you know, how, how can parents encourage parents who, who may have no expertise whatsoever in ecology or in wildlife biology, how can, how can they encourage a sense of care for other species uh, in their kids? And, and what some of the things that became clear to me as I was learning about these conservationists' early lives was, firstly, that many of them kept company with other species because they'd had some loss, some personal loss in their in their early lives, and and they found solace by. Going out and appreciating abundance, as you say, or go going out going out in the woods and looking closely at what was happening in the leaf litter, <laughs> and those were experiences that took them out of themselves, took them out of their problems, whatever those problems may be. And I think, especially you know, during the pandemic, these these are tough times for kids in particular. And and nature, so to speak, natural phenomena, uh, what what species are doing in the neighborhood, uh, can be can be a real source of comfort, I think, to kids of, of most any age. And, and one of the things I suggested in the article was try, try finding a a modern hack for this is, is, you know, try finding a few video clips of, of crazy things that are going on nearby. Like there are great time-lapse videos of, of mushrooms fruiting, you know, on, on logs and you can, see these great videos of tadpoles migrating across a pond. And, and you know, the magic of filmmaking allows you to see the magic of these phenomena that you might not even know are going on in your backyard and then to seek them out in real life. And, you know, parents, I don't think, can script magic or, or wonder, but they can, parents and conservation organizations can certainly, I think, open the door to those experiences for kids and, and, and understand that they don't have to be dramatic far-flung experiences. They can just be with a little support and encouragement. They can happen very close to home and they can happen, you know, on kids, you know, they can happen in the course of an afternoon. Uh, Rachel Carson, actually, I, I would encourage people to check out an essay that, that Rachel Carson wrote, um, that she meant to turn into a book but never had the chance to because she died too early unfortunately but she she wrote very beautifully about the importance of encouraging a sense of wonder in kids and and really how easy it was <laughs> to just stop and and take time to stop and look with kids and how no special knowledge was required except that kind of patience and and sort of sense of companionship and she described going to the seashore with her four-year-old nephew and, and his joy in, in being her companion in exploration. So I think, you know, all of that is, she wrote it 50 plus years ago now, but it's all still relevant and it's all still possible. Um, and I know that, I know that many kids and, and their parents have taken advantage of of their looked more closely at their own neighborhoods during the pandemic, and that has been another small silver lining to to the past year or so.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed. May, well, maybe, maybe what you, I'll put another book idea in your brain, and that is to take <laughs> all these stories that are in <laughs> beloved beasts and turn them into make them children versions. I mean, a beloved beasts as a children's book would be, I think, the same stories, just you know for a child um
1: i've i've thought about that actually i would love to write a version of it for young people because my hope at least would be that these the stories of these people and the stories of these animals would be interesting to other ages as well
0: no oh, i i no i think kids would absolutely love it And on that note, so we can let you go and get back to writing that children's version of this. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank you so much for being here today and and talking about this kind of went off in some directions that... Uh, wasn't planned, but that's the beauty of of these conversations. So thank you for uh, being patient and and sharing all that. And thank you for the book. I, I truly, truly mean that it's it's a wonderful book. I really would encourage everyone to grab a copy of it um, and because they are wonderful stories. but but make sure you get to to the final chapters too. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for what you do, and thank you for asking the big questions.
0: Once again, I'd like to thank Michelle Nyhaus for sharing her perspective on conservation thinking, both past and present. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work behind the scenes in pulling together another wonderful podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.